Sound the bloody klaxons, fly the flags and crack open the after eights. It's bloody episode 5 of John Doe & Co. I hope your ear holes are open and your mind spongy for this monumental auditory event that is coming your way. Nah, temper expectations, innit? I'm only one bloke. But, hope you enjoy it. In all seriousness, thank you so much for being here so far. Your support is amazing to have and I can't wait to continue our journey into the strange together. Getting all soppy now. But yeah, keep doing what you're doing, tell your mates, review and subscribe, all that jazz, and I'll keep on recording in my cupboard. So, episode 5, what are we covering? It's pretty gnarly, can't lie. Some of the things we're going to investigate together is gonna be, such as the nature of crimey, spooky stuff. So, join me as we delve into the case of the murder of Don Hardin and the hands of horror. Buckle up, gang. In 1994, workers at the San Diego Fibers Corporation were sorting through the cardboard recycling when they came across a horrific discovery. A pair of severed hands. I could not find whether these workers ever went back to work, but after this, blimey, I wouldn't blame them if they didn't in the slightest. Lieutenant Jim Collins, a homicide detective for the SDPD, recalled at the time, First, I wasn't sure whether this was legit or not. You know, a pair of human hands in a dumpster seems kind of strange. Now, if there's one thing you can say about Jim, it's that he's not a man you can argue with. He makes insightful points. Strange indeed. X-rays showed degenerative damage that lined up with someone older, maybe over 60, and the size of the appendages meant the victim was likely male. The right hand also had one very distinctive feature. The thumb fingernail was missing. Just gets better, doesn't it? Fingernail stuff and eye stuff just freaks me out. Also, when I was researching this case, I was reading a magazine article on it that I picked up from the post office, and it just fully had a picture of the hands, which really shocked me. Like, imagine if you take your kid to get the new issue of Match or Beano, and the little blighter picks up the wrong one and gets dismembered hands all over their developing psyche. Brutal. Detectives began checking morgues and hospitals to see if they had any recently deceased with missing hands. Meanwhile, across San Diego, two ladies named Mary Mead and Terry Holland were beginning to worry about their father. He hadn't been seen in over a week. I called everybody I could get a hold of. Have you seen him? Have you heard from him? Nobody had heard from him. It was at this point I got really scared, says Mary. It's very hard to explain. You go through scared, then almost anger, then worry, adds Terry. Sadly, as I'm sure you've probably gathered by now, these poor ladies' worries were not unfounded. Police learned that Don had that missing fingernail that made itself apparent earlier. Fingerprint analysis of the hand revealed that they did in fact belong to 74-year-old retired Navy pilot Don Hardin. I thought we were in some badly produced police TV story, Terry comments. When Don's home was searched, evidence seemed to point to a robbery. The TV, microwave and VCR were missing, which in the 90s was the complete set really. You could whip up a hot pocket and screen the video of Emperor's New Groove until the tape wears down. Not speaking from personal experience, of course. Alongside these missing, cutting-edge items was the fact that Don's truck was also absent. The TV guide was open at March 28th. Small drops of blood were found in the kitchen, and it appeared that detergents and bleach had been used to clean the kitchen and bathroom. No bueno. A little bit about Don. He was a widower that had moved to San Diego to be closer to his two daughters. Neighbours described him as standoffish and quite difficult, but his daughters maintained that he was loving, sincere and caring. 
He had a history of helping those in need, hiring the homeless to carry out odd jobs around his property, and offering them a place to stay in the form of a trailer in his backyard. Mary and Terry didn't mind this. They were happy to have someone around in case of emergencies, and to help out their dad with little errands. So, yeah, it seems like he might have been a little grumpy in his old age, but Hart was in the right place. Police kept a lookout for the stolen items, but only found his ID and medals in a dumpster. No sign of the others. Further investigation was conducted at Don's property. A bloodstain and a... Please no eating for this little snippet. A piece of human tissue was found wedged into a wall vent in the bathroom. To confirm their theory that a cleanup had taken place, detectives decided to employ luminol. Not a detective from Europe, but a fancy and rather clever chemical. For the uninitiated, luminol could be used to detect the presence of blood even when it's been cleaned up with water or bleach. I think it's something to do with reacting to the traces of iron in the blood. It then emits a glow when mixed with another agent. Super clever and super useful. It's remarkable how far we've come with gathering evidence and stuff. Like, it amazes me that people were even caught for crime way back in the day when we didn't have forensics. Gary Dorset, a forensic analyst at the scene, recounted his experience. It was the largest glow of luminol I had ever seen. It was like a Christmas tree. Blimey. Probably without the merriment, George Michael and mostly eaten tubs of celebrations though, eh? A huge amount of blood was found in the kitchen with a trail leading to the bathroom. In the bathroom, there was yet more blood. DNA tests confirmed the news Mary and Terry feared. The blood belonged to Don and, from the amount, pathologists surmised it was unlikely he made it through this horrific event alive. Don led a relatively simple life, so there was a big question mark over the two key questions. Who and why? The day before he disappeared, neighbours saw him with his frequent companion, 41-year-old Dale Whitmer. Whitmer was a vagrant who Don was allowing to stay in the trailer out back. Dale did have a history of crime, but nothing too crazy, drunk and disorderly and the like which didn't allude to violence. At the time, Whitmer denied any knowledge of Don's whereabouts. He said that he worked and lived with Don on and off for years, and that Don was like a father to him. He said he had moved out recently, and Don had loaned him his pickup truck to collect his belongings, including the TV and VCR. This sounded all above board, and Whitmer wasn't looked at with a rouse suspicion. However, neighbours painted a different picture to the father-son bond Whitmer portrayed. Dale had confided in them that Don was bothering him, that he would belittle him and call him names. During interrogation, Whitmer was shown a photo of the severed hands. He instantly knew they were Don's. Over the years, he'd grown to know them. The missing fingernail was also clearly an identifying factor. Whitmer wasn't keen to say much more, and refused a lie detector. His fingerprints were found around the house, but, being someone who completed odd jobs, this wasn't necessarily weird. Detective Jim Collins remarked that Whitmer seemed nonchalant. He had an answer for every question we had. With no other leads, the disappearance and likely murder of Don Harden went unsolved for over a year. That was until 1995 when police received a letter which provided the essential breakthrough needed to identify the perpetrator. Police received a letter which spoke about the murder in detail, including elements that had not been released to the public. It included motive, timeline and how the body was dismembered and disposed of. Crucially, it also named the killer, Dale Whitmer. The writer of the letter said their friend, Bob, had identified the murderer. 
The text explained that Dale hated Don and that Don used to physically punish Dale for not working hard enough. That Dale was a heroin addict who resided in Don's backyard for a year. That a breaking point had been reached. Dale had killed Don and dismembered him in the bathtub and buried different parts all over the country in Mexico. Despite the sensational nature of the letter, the mysterious Bob would not come forward. They, whoever they were, were afraid of reprisals, specifically from Dale, as he would apparently immediately know who penned the letter. The forensic documents office at the police department analysed the letter and looked at the postmark. It had not been sent with stamps, but had gone through a franking machine. I used to work a lot with these, and basically they're these big machines which automate postage rates and charge you. You whack the letter through the machine, it sort of stamps it with the correct stuff. A lot of businesses use them to speed up the process. Used to get in the post room, whack on some tunes, and it was weirdly therapeutic in a mundane, repetitive way. I was good at it, frankly. Franking machine. Frankly. Swing and a miss. Return to sender. I'll stop with the mail puns now. Dead, aren't they? Need a post-mortem. Signed, sealed, delivered. Honestly, stopping now, yep. Yep, stopping now. Moving very smoothly and swiftly on. Each letter that is passed through one of these machines is marked with the serial number of that individual one. The writer was one step ahead and covered this number with white ink to conceal it and prevent tracking. However, the forensic documents team were two steps ahead and managed to isolate the patch of paper with the number and penetrate it with various frequencies of light, revealing the serial. This all led to Davis Capital Management in La Mesa, California, around 10 miles from central San Diego. The owner of the company was Mark Davis, also a bishop at the Mormon church. When he was confronted by detectives, he admitted he wrote the letter and his source was a member of his church. He refused to identify them further. He cited that the information was given in confidence and that a certain privilege lay within the relationship between a bishop and his clergy. He was taken to court and ruled against in this matter, the judgment ruling that his confidence was broken when Mark wrote the letter and that not every interaction was protected. Mark Davis complied with demands and revealed that Bob was none other than Dale Whitmer's own daughter, Andrea. Upon meeting with Andrea, investigator David Rubin recalls that Andrea was difficult and sensitive. She loved her father very much, despite the fact he was a murderer. Dealing with her required care and consideration. Poor Andrea. I can't imagine the turmoil that would cause. Imagine if a loved one committed murder. You can't just switch on them and turn all the love you had for them off. Dale Whitman was arrested and charged with murder. On 15th September 1997... Dale went on trial and pleaded not guilty. Andrea was the star witness. Her difficult position extended to the courtroom. If she lied to protect her father, she would be betraying her God and obviously denying the true course of justice. If she told the truth, she resigned her father to probably life in prison. Andrea made the right choice and told the truth. She confirmed all that had been relayed in the letter. Dale was a heroin addict who needed bunny. On March 28, 1994, Dale walked into the kitchen and killed Don. It was revenge for past abuse and also to sell some of Don's belongings to make money to fuel his addiction. The TV, VCR and microwave were sold for drugs. He was convicted of second-degree murder. Sadly, the hands were the only parts of Don that were ever found. They were cremated and buried at sea off the coast of California by the US Navy. 
Dale was sentenced to 15 years to life in prison. Detective James Tomsevich says without the letter, the case would have gone unsolved. There was a probability we would never prove anything. On March 7th, 2006, nearly 12 years after the murder, Dale Whitmer had his first meeting with a parole board and was denied early release. Several more attempts at early release have been made since, with one claim that his rights were violated during the original trial. Seems like he might be trying every avenue, really. Of course, all these tries have been unsuccessful. He is next eligible for parole in February 2025, 28 years after he was sent to prison. So, there we go, a sad case, but one that ultimately ended in justice. My thoughts go to Terry and Mary, and we'll see what happens in February 2025. Five episodes, five! Hopefully many more, huh? I really hope you're enjoying it. I'm really enjoying making this. It always helps to follow at John Doe and Copod on Insta and Twitter. Rate, review and subscribe on your podcasting app. And if you want to go the extra mile, head on over to Patreon at patreon.com forward slash John Doe and Copod and donate. Bonuses will be abound and I've got some wicked stuff planned should I get enough pledges. So please give it a think. Shout outs as well. And feel free to DM any suggestions or what you'd like to see as always. We're often accustomed to stories of deranged killers, perfect storms of circumstance leading to someone committing heinous acts. But what about when someone is willing to do it for the right price? Something I've always found very interesting. Join me as we delve into the case of the UK's first recorded female contract killer in next week's episode, The Two Lives of T, Ranga Maria and Garamu. Take it easy, missing you all already, and thanks for being such good company as always. Peace out.